Hello and welcome to Frameline. I'm Barbara Gosowski, and I'm here with my favorite co-host, Courtney Small. Hello. How are you, Courtney? Uh, not too bad. Are you today? Good. Ready for a fantastic show. Yet another fantastic hot dog show. Hot Dogs opens tonight, April 26th. If you're not invited to the opening night film, this is a great place to be because Courtney and I are going to give you some more of the hot picks that we've decided are the hottest picks. Yeah, there's lots to see. So Yeah, so we're going to talk about hot picks later on in the show. And we have two guests today. Later on in the show, Turning Tables, a film by Chrisanne Hessing. She's here and she's going to talk to us about it. But first, we're going to talk to Christy Garland about her film, What Walla Wants. She's here right now. It's part of the Canadian Spectrum. It is a fascinating film about a young woman named Wala. She's a woman who has grown up in some of the most difficult circumstances. She has been living in a refugee camp in the West Bank. Her mother was a political prisoner for eight years. When we start following her, she's 15, and we, we get to follow her until she's 21. So imagine you're 15, and your mother's been in prison your father has moved on somewhere else, and you have a bunch of siblings to raise. Then her mother comes home, and there's some things to deal with after that as well. And so I don't want to ruin the film because it's a, it really is a fascinating portrait, beautiful, intimate film. Uh, there's a lot to talk about. So, Christy, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's very nice to be here. Let's talk about following Wala. And in fact, you have this, this beautiful, intimate style that you develop in your filmmaking. And it comes from following a subject very, very closely. Now, it's interesting in this case, because Voila is a defiant 15-year-old when you meet her. She's got problems, that situation, those circumstances. Who can blame her? But she's also got this rebellious spirit in her. Now, when it comes to choosing your subject when it comes to deciding to follow this person what drew you to to voila in the first place Walla is just one of those people that um she's the first person you notice in a room she's she's got a lot of energy she's very charismatic and uh she's very funny and i like funny people but she she i mean i met her i was in the west bank for the first time actually i um I find my films usually by kind of just following my nose and sometimes just hunches. And um, so I thought I, I thought I was fine looking for a different kind of film. I, I'd been film. Um, I made a film called "The Bastard Sings the Sweetest Song," and I was cutting that in Copenhagen, Denmark, actually. And I met a woman who was um, this amazing woman who, do, who who leads workshops in conflict zones, teaching young women technology and more specifically how to design their own video games. And using the narratives of their own lives to sort of craft the video games, which I thought was a really great idea. And I thought there might be a documentary in that. And she was doing a workshop throughout the West Bank. And so I said, listen, I'll come with my camera and I'll just piggyback and I'll give you some footage to raise some more financing for your workshops. And maybe I'll find a film. And I thought it would be a film about, you know, a young girl who wants to make her own video game. And But that really ended up being a lot of footage of people staring at computers. This is kind of a boring, it's like trying to make a film about writing. <laughs> right. Um, so it, it was a hard thing to film. And also, I, I don't really, I mean, that I, I'll follow a hunch in terms of, okay, that subject matter might be cool, but I don't really lock into it until um, I, f I find somebody. I really kind of start with casting, which I know is an unusual word for documentary, but I try to make films that unfold without interviews or anything like that. So I really need to find a specific kind of person. First, somebody who can carry a film, who looks like they're about to have a story that sort of unfolds in their life, and that is courageous and brave enough to let me get that close and stick around for as long as it takes to get that, you know, to get the story. And I never really know how long that is when I begin a film. So Walla at first sort of kept me at arm's length. She wasn't really interested in having me follow her with a camera, which I totally respected. But the reason for that was also because she was sort of, her father, her mother had just been released from prison the, uh, you know, a few months previous, actually but more than six months earlier than that. And she was sort of sick of living under the shadow of her mother um, because her mother is, um, yeah, her mother is sort of quite uh, famous where she is, um, and, and kind of considered a freedom fighter. And, and 
I guess she was just sort of sick of everybody kind of defining her by, by her mother. And she thought that's the reason why I wanted to film her. And I said, you know what? Actually, I'm more interested in what you want to do with your life. And that sort of, you know, so they cautiously gave me permission to sort of hang around that first time I was there. I shot just a couple things with her. I shot her walking out of a hair salon in Balata Camp and walking down this, walking through Balata Camp. And it's funny, I, I sh that was just the first thing I shot and I didn't think I'd use it. And then I ended up um, uh, erasing it on my hard drive and I remembered it late in the editing process and we somehow got it, you know, recovered from the drive I accidentally erased it from and that's sort of the, one of the opening scenes in the film. And it's kind of incredible because walking through Balata Camp, it seems like it's a maze and it never ends. Like she just keeps it turning a, a corner and there's a more, like more narrow hallway and then she turns another corner and it's narrow and you feel like she's never going to kind of get out of there. And I thought that was a nice image for the place and the situation that she lives in. Mm -hmm. When you talk about her story unfolding, when you put the film together, or I don't know if this was a conscious decision afterwards in the way that you put the film together, it does unfold in a narrative way, not like you're imposing a narrative, like it, like it just comes out of the material, like the story just unf unfolded that way. Yeah, I make choices, definitely. I mean, I, and I like, I mean, the last few films I've done, I, I very much like films that in some cases can conform to traditional storytelling, um, structure. You know, it usually begins with somebody, a character who wants something and, um, towards pursuing that goal, they encounter obstacles. That's sort of the first thing you learn in film school and screenwriting school. Um, but that to try and find a, a story like that in, in real life and then find somebody who's also comfortable in uh, letting you follow them through that is, is sort of another thing. But yeah, I mean, it, it does involve making choices and sort of arranging things as they come and then trying to anticipate where the story's going and at the same time being prepared for where it goes. And it's really interesting. I mean, that's why I sort of became addicted to the process because it um, – I don't know, it just sucks you in and you, you really get so, it's almost like I'm living a parallel life. Like I'm, I'm living my own life. Um, and then I've also got this other person's life who I'm completely attuned to. And then anytime something happens or seems like it's going to happen, I'll jump on a plane and go there. And it's, it's a constant wrestling match in terms of trying to be there for certain things. And as you know, this story is an, like, it's a roller coaster. I mean, the synopsis doesn't really do justice for it. It sort of tells the first, part of the story, but you kind of, you're not prepared for what's going to happen in the third act. There's a, a huge, uh, a couple huge surprises. And, um, you know, I, I was just sort of, for the most part, just trying to keep in contact with her and make sure that I was there to shoot as much as I possibly could and then deal with the creative challenges of, of how to, how to fill the audience in on the story bits that I missed. But I, I was lucky I caught a lot of, I caught everything you kind of need to tell the story. Yeah, absolutely. It was, it's really surprising. It's like, no matter which, which kind of surprise or turn happens, it's as if you anticipated it. You know, it's as if you were so attuned to her, even though she's so difficult to predict. Kind of. <laughs> I mean, as we know, she's a bit of a rule breaker. I mean, I honestly thought when she, when she finally got around to applying to the PSF and then she gets to boot camp or police academy, I knew, I mean, the th one of the th reasons I fell in love with Walla was because even though she's one of those people where her flaws and the things that get in her way, are are also things I admire about her. She grew up, her mother was in prison. She actually, it's sort of, I think it's a misunderstanding. She didn't raise her siblings. She's one of the younger siblings. Her father is in Jordan with another family. And, you know, she's basically been raised by her older sisters in, in pretty serious poverty and in a very violent place. But also, you know, it's Balata Camp, refugee camp. It was established in 1948. It's also, there's a lot of love there and families and it's just one of those places. But it's where the first and second intifadas were based and a lot where a lot of the fighting took place and a lot of the um, people, the resistance to the Israeli occupation is kind of centered there or has been outside of Gaza, I mean, which is a totally different, you know, situation. And so this is a kid who's grown up in that area and she's just learned how to take care of herself and the tools that she needs to do that in Balata camp 
aren't the same tools she needs to sort of navigate a more functional environment like the police academy. So just this whole like you have to look after yourself because no one else is going to doesn't quite work with the whole being at the police academy is more like what a lot of North American kids would recognize as summer camp or university where you're expected to cooperate and follow rules and 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 discipline and, and responding to a structure is a healthy functional thing to do. Wallace had zero structure in her life. I mean, she just hasn't. And so there, suddenly the whole idea that she had to follow rules and um, so the the whole transformation that she takes when she's over there was wonderful. Um, but I, I, I mean, I guess even I was a bit surprised that she was breaking so many rules because she wanted to be – she wanted it so badly. And then – but that's what happens. You know, very often we want something in life. And we get it and we realize that we're not equipped for it. And in order to hang on to that goal, we have to transform and sort of that's what happens with Walla. And so everything that kind of happened really, really did happen. You know, in some cases, uh, you know, sometimes I worry because it, you know, I think the film looks, it almost seems scripted like you say. But we did know from the trainers like we would hear because they would know when all the different kids were acting up. So we were kind of getting a sense of what was happening with her and when we should be ready to see her either. I mean, she gets in trouble so much. In fact, there's so many scenes we couldn't fit in the film, but she ended up in somebody's office getting in trouble for this, that, and the other thing. It was going to be, in my mind, it was going to be a sequence where we just jump cut between one officer telling her <laughs> off and then another one telling her off. Um, but then uh, we had to kind of narrow that down and focus the story as soon as the third act became more complicated. Right. Uh, so anyways, yeah, it is it's it it is a balancing act and um, anticipating who she is and what she does. Um, it, you know, sometimes I, I felt like I could and other times I just sort of had to go along for the ride. So how much did your um, presence at the PSF Academy impact how either the trainers were dealing with her or how she was interacting with um, her fellow cadets because there's there's times where she's being defiant and she kind of looks at the camera to to almost tell you as like, like whatever you know I'm not listening to them so was there a bit of jealousy on the part of the cadets that you know she's being followed by this camera crew or were people on their P's and Q's because you were around with a camera documenting? I think all of that, to be honest with you. First of all, there's just no, you know, some myth that you can never become invisible with the camera. A fly on the wall doesn't exist. Like, you're a pretty big fly, and you're right there. And, I mean, imagine poor Walla. Imagine if, you know, for anybody who you've probably got a youth audience, imagine you were – when she's 18 by the time she gets there, imagine you're going to a new class or – training for the army or showing up at university and you've got this horrible Canadian woman with a big camera following you around. I mean, she was so horrified, of course. And I had permission to do it. But at the same time, it did give her, I don't know, it, it worked both ways. And they were very aware of the fact that I was there. I knew, you know, one of, you know, every documentary adores Albert Maisel's and the Maisel's brother films. And Albert Maisel says this, this one thing that I think is very true or certainly certainly borne out in my experience, is that, yes, uh, people get um, nervous and they perform. They can't help but try and project an image of themselves when you've got a camera and you're following them. But if you stick around and you do that for long periods, most people aren't professional. Of course, not even professional actors could keep up a performance like that. So after a while, they you're shooting so much, you just kind of become a piece of the furniture. And also these kids had to – they had to follow orders. They had to march. They had to do all these things. They didn't really have time to be too aware of me after a while. And she was pretty used to me by that time. So there was sort of this mixture of like uh, they would get distracted and forget that I was there. But they never really forgot I was there, of course. Um, and the uh, Palestinian security – like the police academy and the trainers, they're very aware that they're being filmed. And usually, you know, especially Issa, I mean, Issa is a character out of central casting. And I really, you know, I really like Issa and so did Walla. And he's normally in the films that I've made before, he might not be a character that I would include in the film because he, he is acting, I swear, exactly the way he normally acts. He's a peacock. He, he definitely acts that way when there, whether there's a camera or not. He's a tough guy and, you know, he's a very tough trainer. Um, but, 
I found it very interesting because of who I was following and where I was making this film. And the fact that when I was raising money for it with the producers, nobody knew what the Palestinian security forces is. And that's a complicated question to answer because they are, you know, they, some people in North America thought it was a militant organization associated with Hamas. What the Palestinian security forces is, is it is just like any other police force in any other state. You know, where they police themselves and it's imperfect and there's all kinds of problems with it, but it's also the beginnings of a Palestinian state. So that was what was interesting to me is that Walla wanted to participate in that because it, re it represented independence, having a job, everything that anybody else would want. But yeah, at the same time, I think the, um, I think the officers and the trainers were very well aware that they had an opportunity. Maybe that's why I got access. They had an opportunity to represent the PSF and the police academy for the first time because no camera has ever been allowed there before and shot a film like this. And so it gave them an opportunity to show a side of themselves where, you know, in many parts of the world, people just assume Palestinians are terrorists. So they just don't know um, what's going on. So I really enjoyed that. I thought, you know what, this is becoming a genre film. This is like an army film where it's a charismatic, rebellious protagonist goes into the army and rebels. And there's, you know, Louis Gossett Jr. and Richard Gere or, you know, Steve McQueen in The Great Escape. And I thought, I don't mind that. I, I like that there's this very, for this part, there's a fictional framework that's coming in here. And I wasn't forcing it. I was just following it. But definitely I started to follow the things that I felt we're following into that story because I thought this is going to draw people into a place and a person that they would not normally meet and that we need to learn a lot more about Palestinians than we know. And so why not? This is an entertaining story. Let it let this story be as entertaining as it is. And um, OK, so if East is acting a little bit like he's seen Full Metal Jacket too many times, that's completely <laughs> fine. For this film, it's totally fine. And plus, he's they're entertaining to watch. So I I had fun doing that part. Right. I found that, that Walla herself, what happens to her, the way that she starts, you follow her at 15, the way she, the way, the place that she ends up at, that was also kind of a universal story. What you were saying about nobody really knows the, the reality of being Palestinian, but we all know the reality of being 15 and how what we think and what we want at 15, it gets kind of, it shifts. Things shift. And our, our rebelliousness, there's, it just goes in different directions. You yeah. Know? And I think that's the thing is you think you know what you want. She had an idea in her mind that um, she wanted to be in the PSF because she wanted a gun. And I found that detail to be very interesting because it also does in a way, it nods to this whole idea that, okay, this is a kid who's grown up in Balata camp where she sees guns all the time. You know, whether it's the IDF coming in for raids, whether it's the Palestinian security forces having gun battles with insurgents in Balata camp. This is a kid who has totally, total familiarity with tear gas, guns, people being, you know, thrown in jail, like every other neighbor's been to prison. So yes, of course she wants a gun. And that tells me something about how she's, you know, how she looks after herself. But what I loved was that when she got there and then she goes through this whole all this whole transformation while she's at the PSF and on her recovery when she's really, really feel like she's learned a lot, they finally, finally, finally get to do target practice and to hold a gun. And it's so heavy that she has to rub her shoulder. It shouldn't really expect it to be that heavy. It's real now and you have to be careful and it's a dangerous thing. And I just sort of liked how it represented her hope and her optimism um, and her strength, but then the learning curve that happens is something we can all identify with because it's pretty universal. Like, you know, careful what you ask for because when you get it, it's not exactly what you think it's going to be. And so that's what I, you know, that's what I thought was going to be something people were going to be able to relate to. One of the things that has struck me about your filmmaking is all your films have a a parental, a complex parental type of dynamics. So um, in your debut film, you have the, the alcoholic mother. Um, in Cheer Up, you know, she's a parental figure in terms of the coach leading this, this squad of underachieving. And here you have, um, Walla's relationship with her mother. And we see how it unfolds from her as a young child, you know, longing for her mother's presence to be there. And then as we see through the film, when the mother's presence is finally back home, their relationship kind of changes, especially as she evolves and grows. And then also you have someone like Issa who, 
by default kind of becomes like the a parental figure while she's at um the PSF Academy. So what is it about that theme, about that complex parental relationship that your films manage to evoke? Is that something that you think about going in or is it just by fluke that they all kind of have that through line? To be honest with you, I've just started noticing that myself. I, I think I'm attracted to a certain kind of story. Like with Muscle and Mary, of course, as anybody did, I felt head over heels in love with Mary. And I really loved Muscle, too. Uh, and I know we're not here to talk about The Bastard, but I love the opportunity to talk about that film because it didn't get seen that much. But um, I have noticed a theme. I think it, you know, it really is that it kind of comes down to I am being, I'm attracted to stories that I'm attracted to for whatever reason. And yes, they're because they, um, they, I really, if I, I feel like if I relate to them, other people will relate to them. And that I'm picking on things that I feel are universal. And with the bastard, I mean, uh, alcoholism runs through my family for sure and, and on both sides. And, you know, and I, and I, you know, in, in North America and Canada, I think the proper thing to do is pretend that your aunt or your uncle or whoever, your mother or your dad isn't drunk and everything's fine and you sweep it under the carpet and that's, you know, you know, you just want to deny that it's there. And what I loved about muscle was that he was confronting it in his own way. There's no AA in Georgetown, Guyana. And he, to protect his mother as an act of love, he kept her locked up in a room in the back of the house, which seems brutal to us. But I thought, I love how he's confronting this head on and he's trying to do something about it. So, yeah, I guess there's always something. I mean, Cheer Up was also very family-themed. It's all about everybody being lonely and everybody ultimately – the happy endings in the story all have to do with family and a lot, it's a big mother theme as well. I have a great relationship with my mother for sure, but it's, you know, it's an unusual relationship for sure. And, um, yeah, maybe there's something in that. Maybe there's something, uh, but you know, again, it is sort of, um, something that everybody can kind of relate to. I mean, how many people have a perfectly kosher relationship with both their mother and their father? There's going to be, I mean, some people do, and if they do, I'm very happy for them. But I think most people have a bit of a story or there's some kind of, you know, thing going on. Um, so I, you know, that sort of I feel like is pretty fertile ground for storytelling. So does that add the the sense of, um, I guess, bittersweetness that are that's in all your films? Like I, I would say that Wall is probably the the most uplifting, but it's not your traditional sense of an uplifting film. Like there's still uh, a hint of melancholy yeah. um, that, that throws throughout. So is that just because of the, the type of individuals that you're – yeah, I don't know. I swear to God, I'd start out every film thinking it's going to be a comedy. Like I do. I want it to be like a fun comedy and then I end up getting this crazy mixture. But I think it's because I follow real people over a really long period of time and, and life goes up and down and you, it's a bit of a roller coaster, I think, for everybody. But yeah, I think, uh, I, what I try to do is I try to get so close to, um, a person while they're going through something so that I can show their intentions, that I can make people understand what their intentions are and how sometimes the outside world doesn't recognize that. I mean, we all walk around feeling, to a certain degree, everybody feels a little bit misunderstood. You know what I mean? What goes on in your head, who you think you are, what you think is good about you, very often doesn't translate to the way the world understands you or what happens uh, as a result of your actions if that doesn't sound too abstract. And I always try to find that thing in that person. And, you know, if we're all the hero of our own movie, I try to make a movie based on how hopefully what their hope is in terms of what they're, what they're trying to do. And then of course I, but I don't lie about it and I don't sugarcoat anything. I, I show the way life happens on the outside, but I really start with, a sense of who that person is and try to make people, no matter what the situation is, who the person is, try to make sure that they might not condone their actions, but they understand them better than they did before. And I, I have this thing that I like to flip people. I like to start with characters that people are going to probably judge really negatively and immediately at the beginning. And at the end, my goal is to have the audience feel like they're family. I can see that. that I, I, I feel that. At the end of each film, and especially at the end of this one. This is great. Thank you so great. much. Well, thank you so much for having me, and I hope some people come out to see what Walla wants. Oh, I bet they will. Can I plug the, sh the show times? Of course. Okay, well, it premieres at May 1st, on May 1st, at the Tiff Bell Lightbox, number two, and that's at 6 o'clock, uh, so that's Tuesday, May 1st. The next screening is May 
3rd. That's also at the TIFF Light Box. And uh, screening that night is 6.15. And then on Friday, it's at 3 o'clock at Hard House. Perfect. Thank you. Bye now. Okay. So Courtney and I will be back in just a second. Okay, you're back again with Frameline on Radio Regent. I'm Barbara Gosofsky here with Courtney Small, and we are going to interview Chris Ann Hassing. She made a short film called Turning Tables. It's part of the shorts program Below the Surface. Do not miss the shorts programs because there's a lot of hidden gems in there. Get your tickets quickly because a lot of people do like shorts. Uh, there, it's, it's such a opportunity to see some really great things, a number of them programmed together. It's usually a, a wonderful experience. And of course, at Hot Docs, they really know how to program their shorts. So anyway, okay. So Chris Ann has made a film called Turning Tables and Turning Tables is about this techno pioneer, Joshua DePerry. Uh, he goes by the name of Classic Roots, and he's known for the way that uh, his DJing integrates the sounds of his Anishinaabe heritage with electronic and house music. And he's a darling. He's absolutely cap uh, captivating person to watch. Um, not only do we, we follow him, but we also see him doing his art and we see him participating in dance. He goes back to his community where, where he was raised and he goes there and he participates in these traditional dances and everyone calls him a fancy dancer because he throws in these contemporary dance moves. So he's just captivating on all these levels. So Chrisette, I would love to know how you and Joshua got together to make this film. Um, first of all, I just want to say thank you for having me on the on the show. It's it's great to be able to um, talk about this film that we've been working so hard on for the last year. Um, in fact, I met Joshua for the first time um, three years ago now, and it was actually on the set, uh, working on the set of um, a commissioned piece by the National Art Center called I Lost My Talk, uh, which is based on um, the poem by acclaimed uh, indigenous poet Rita Joe, And... Um, for that production, I was on the crew and Joshua was one of the dancers. Um, so we were out up in Kilbear Park for six days, like filming out in nature. And him and I, that's how we got to know each other. And we just kind of kept in touch over over the years. And when things really started picking up with him, um, about a, um, in 2016, the end of 2016, when he started collaborating with DJ Shub, who's formerly of A Tribe Called Red, so we met up again um, at the end of 2016, and that's when he told me about all these exciting things. And I said, oh, this would make an excellent documentary. Like, you're on the come up right now, and it's such a great time to be able to follow someone, not only who's doing such a, an amazing thing, but at this time in his career. So it wasn't very difficult to convince him. Um, he was he was on board. To, he was just like, yeah, for sure, whenever you want, bring the cameras. And, uh, yeah, that's we kind of took off from there. So what was your strategy going in? Once he agreed, how did you want to capture him? Um, I'd say the idea really kind of hit me the first time that I actually saw him perform um, in concert. And it was actually for DJ Shub's uh, release party of his album, um, Pow Wow Step, back in 2016. And Josh had invited me. And I had only known him at that point as a DJ. Um, and I knew that he was um, uh, trying this new thing that he calls Pow Wow Techno. So he said, oh, come see me spin. And I said, okay, I'll come out. I went to the show. And um, it was great to see, like, he's an excellent TJ. Like, everyone was on, he got everyone on the floor dancing. And he's the kind of guy that, you know, he'd be spinning for a little bit, but then the music would just take him over and he'd have to leave the decks to just dance it out on the dance floor and with everyone else. So I was like, whoa, this guy's got some amazing energy. And then after that, what I wasn't expecting was for him to come back later in the night um, during DJ Shub's set where he danced um, in full regalia, the, the traditional fancy dancer regalia. And he was pulling backflips on this tiny stage. In It was at the, the Velvet Underground. So it was just such a 
sensory overload for me, visually, like sound-wise. And I just thought, okay, I need to capture this um, visually and then the feeling as well, the feeling of how he was so beautifully able to um, har- um, harmonize like the visuals and the sound. And it's something that at first thought you wouldn't think would make sense to go together, but you just feel it and when, when it happens. And and my goal was always just to try to replicate that kind of emotion um, and his energy, of course. And did you find it hard to, to replicate that? Because one of the things that struck me about this film is the the visual aspect of it, like the, the colors from the traditional garb really pop on screen. And I, I loved how you edited the, the dance sequences from, you know, him on stage to him around the city. And there's a great one of him in, I think it's Museum Station. Yes. Yeah, uh, that I, I really loved. And so was it, was it tough for you to, to try and keep that vibrant energy when you were editing while still being respectful for the, the tradition? Yeah, I'd say, um, I, I'd say it wasn't, it wasn't, um, the most difficult part, I think, for me was, deciding what to cut out because he was pulling dance moves everywhere. And even when we weren't supposed to be filming a dance sequence, he would just dance. And we're just like, <laughs> okay, put the cameras on him. He's dancing. So um, in fact, that whole idea for, for filming him in the subway kind of came late on, um, in the process of filming where he once just sent me like an Instagram story of him on the on the street and like it was snowing outside or something like that. And he's like, oh, yeah, I just kind of like to dance sometimes and live stream it and I don't care where I am. And I thought, OK, this would be cool if we if we got you doing this in the subway. Um, and yeah, I mean, there was a part of the filming process that was really just like, let's film Joshua dancing in different places. <laughs> and it was very difficult to be like, this isn't like, it's got to be more than a music video, which I think we, we did accomplish at the end of the day. But yeah. Yeah, no, it was, it's captivating. Did Joshua lead you into the segments where he goes home and and talks about, you know, how where he grew up and how he grew up? Yeah, so actually um before I brought the crew up to Thunder Bay, um I had made two or three trips out to Thunder Bay with Joshua. Um where, you know, it was just um he would take me around and introduce me to his family and his friends and I got to know a lot of um the people in his community well before the cameras were brought in. Um and I think that was extremely helpful because by the time all the crew came in, you know, um Everyone was just kind of ready to go. Um, and, yeah, I, I'd i say that, uh, it, you know, we, we, we made the film over the process of a year. So in that time, Joshua and I became very close. Um, and he was very willing to, you know, um, share with me all, all of the uh, difficult moments in his life because he recognized and I recognized as well as, um, that the hard moments in a person's life are just as important um, when, you know, you're experiencing success. Um, it's very important to remember, you know, what you've been through to to find out or have an idea of where you're going. So, yeah. With your first or your previous short film, um, The Good Fight, that one focused on a Muslim woman within the city who – I guess created a karate or martial arts program specifically for for women and you know she is I guess going against conventional stereotypes and I, I noticed that theme runs again in this film where um, Joshua is doing DJing but again out adding the powwow aspect to it and trying to break the mold of what people traditionally think of DJ so is that um, something that just attracts you that particular theme of individuals defying convention? Yeah, I'd say like um, it's funny because I, I, I don't I didn't really notice it until I, I kind of took a step back and looked at my work and I was like, oh, there's this common theme, I guess. <laughs> I, this is just the kinds of things that, yes, I'm, I'm attracted to. And it's it's um, not only um, the idea of, of breaking stereotypes or um, uh, common perceptions of minorities in specific, but it's also just um showing these stories in a positive light which is not i feel like there's not usually those kinds of representations especially of um black indigenous people of color um in film so um that showing positive stories is a really big part of of 
the kind of work that I want to do. And for me, that's great because it's like there's so many amazing people out there doing awesome things. And why, like, if no one else wants to do it, that's fine. I'll cover it. <laughs> like, it's great. Yeah. Well, that's a great goal to have as a filmmaker, isn't it? I mean, here you are, you're redefined, uh, as, as the description says, it redefines, the film redefines what it means to be indigenous and urban, like in an urban setting and providing Joshua as this, this person to introduce us to the concept and to, you know, uh, someone to, to follow, someone to look up to and you, for youth, you know, someone that they can look up to as well. So, mm -hmm. I mean, it seems like that, sort of became your goal anyway, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think um, uh, work uh, work in community uh, or um, people who work in community are also the kinds of people that attract me as documentary subjects because, um, you know, likely there, there are so many people out there who are doing these amazing things and they have people who look up to them and respect them in their respective communities. So being able to give them that attention, give them, shine that spotlight on them, um, not only helps them in, in their endeavors and what they're trying to do, uh, you know, bring that, um, to a bigger audience, um, uh, mainstream audience, but for the people around them too, you know, they're kind of validated in, in this role model that they have. And, uh, I think that's really important. We, we've been getting like such amazing, um, feedback and, and support from indigenous communities everywhere, especially from his hometown. Um, and where I, I can't wait for the day where we can bring it back, um, and, and, you know, show, uh, his hometown community have a screening there. Um, yeah. This film was um, partly funded by BravoFat, which is no longer in existence now. As a as a filmmaker, you know, BravoFat has helped launch a lot of talented filmmakers, such as yourself. And do you, are you find it tougher now going forward to, to try and make a film within Canada, especially if it's a short or full length feature, or is it just that the the industry is changing and it's kind of pushing more people towards like the online distribution model? I think we're actually, <clears throat> I think we're in an interesting time. Um, it's kind of like a limbo right now because uh, Bravo Fact has only been dead like uh, maybe six months now. It's not, it's very fresh. And actually, yeah, Turning Tables was one of the last projects to be funded. And I'm, I'm eternally grateful for that because um, if, you know, the, the things that people pick out about the film uh, when they first watch it are the visuals and the color and all these kinds of things to be able to have shot it in that caliber. Uh, we worked with an amazing cinematographer, uh, John Tran, who, um, you know, just he was the perfect guy for the job and, and he was really able to uh fulfill the potential um, that this project could have. And we couldn't have done that without the, the funding from Bravo Fact. Um, I think, yeah, obviously um, the the attention for 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 filmmakers or, or short filmmakers um, is to is is being led in the world of online. But I feel like there's we haven't quite figured out yet the sure places. Uh, there's a lot of new funds coming up, which is great, but um, you know, we haven't, it hasn't been going on long enough to, for us to really know what these kinds of results would be. And the industry is constantly changing, um, just in terms of the mediums, um, that, you know, people are getting interested in and, and that are, um, really taking over. And in terms of documentary, there's, there's so many, um, opportunities out there. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'd say that, I like. I personally feel very lucky that we were able to get in in that last round of Bravo Fact. I don't know what I would have done if I didn't. Um, but I probably would have made the film anyway. But it might not have looked as great. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I'm I'm just trying to keep an eye out right now for for these new kinds of opportunities that would kind of serve as that um, replacement uh, for shorts filmmakers that would have gone to Bravo Fact. Yeah. And did you um, when you were coming up with the concept of this in terms of filming it did you always intend it to be a short or because at the end of the film as as upbeat as it is i was like i want more i want to know what happens in, in this next stage you know so could a potential feature length be coming down the pipe sometime soon <laughs> we actually had uh there was a lot of like throughout the whole process there were so many ideas flowing about like 
um, what we should do. At one point, I was looking up flights to Berlin, and I was like, I got to follow him there. We got to see what happens. <laughs> um, and then the way that we were talking about it at that point, people were like, I got to film you filming him because this would make a great reality show. <laughs> um, it was – there were a lot of ideas floating around there. And, and um, I do get that question a lot of, of if there will be a feature film. But I think um, – for the for the next little while, where my priority and Joshua's priority, and in fact, just the crew of of the film, um, it lies in the in the impact campaign that we're we're trying to set up, which is uh, it's basically we're calling it the Turning Tables Tour, which basically extends um, everything that Joshua does within the film, uh, making that a reality to First Nations communities uh, that some that he's visited before, some that he hasn't, but. Um, making that effort to go to these often remote locations to have him do what he does in the film, you know, which is uh, inspire this creative confidence in the youth and, and just build community. And um, so that's something that we're, we're developing right now. We've actually partnered with um, um, the indigenous youth led um, organization, we matter, um, which is a campaign uh, dedicated to life promotion and hope for indigenous youth. And they do that um, on their website. They do that through, videos that um, indigenous youth share of their stories just to be able to, to, to um, you know, live in solidarity with each other and support each other. Um, and, you know, their mandate, We Matter's mandate, falls directly under what we're trying to do with this tour and what Joshua will continue to do in his work. And that's just something that we're um, hoping to, to dedicate our next time to. So, yeah. Okay, terrific! I can't. We can't wait to to see what happens with that. Yeah. So, in but in the meantime, everyone needs to go and see Turning Tables at Hot Dogs. Hot Dogs is opening tonight, and go to hotdogs.ca and you'll see where, when, and where Turning Tables will be screening. It's screening as part of a shorts program called Below the Surface. Thank you, Chrisanne Hussing, for talking to us, the director. She's Thank been you. talking to us about this this film, and it's about Joshua DePerry, someone to watch. And uh, you'll just love this introduction to him. It's uh, It's very empowering. So Courtney and I will be back in just a second. Okay, you're back for the final segment of this week's Frame Line. Courtney and I are going to tell you about our hot picks for our hot dogs. We had just, in the second segment, we were talking to a filmmaker who made a short. Chrisanne Hessing made the short, Turning Tables. And Turning Tables is part of the Canadian Spectrum shorts program. It's called Below the Surface. That's the name of the program. And uh, so... I just want to fill you in on the rest of that program because I thought it was really strong and seems to also bring up this theme that I keep running into as I'm watching films, which is, you know, a sense of family or family and family secrets, but backgrounds, you know, roots, that kind of stuff. Um, you know, so Turning Tables was about a, a, a person who's, who's a pioneer in DJing in music and electric, electronic music, but who's going back to his roots. And that's figuratively and literally in in his music. And then in the film, he goes back in Turning Tables, goes back to his community and, and talks about where he, he comes from and the culture, the Anishinaabe culture that he comes from. Let me just get into the to the uh, other films. I, the program starts with a film called Bernie Langille Wants to Know Who Bernie Langille Is. And that's about a, a, a guy who is the grandson who is named after his grandfather, Bernie. So that, that's the title. There's a horrible mystery. And it's a horrible mystery because it's, it's this mystery around his grandfather's death. It's this very intricate, there's all these layers as he, he investigates this. There's all these layers upon layers that, that don't always illuminate what exactly happened. And in fact, sometimes even make it seem even more unreal takes it to this kind of surreal level. And what's interesting, really interesting about the film is the fact that it is done with stop-motion animation, which when you consider the sinister nature of the story and how charming stop-motion animation can be, at least the way it is in this film, using miniatures and everything's very cute. And this this kind of 
fairy tale like music that goes with if you were making a stop motion animation about a fairy tale, you know, about a charming story. You've got that, but you've got him talking about these gruesome details of his father's death. So it's this fascinating experience. So it's very much a, a dark fairy tale, like the. It is very, very much, and this okay. this clash between you know what's being said and what's being shown is is uh, it, it really really makes it stand out. Ooh, that it's, sounds interesting. Yeah, it's a very strong film. There's a film called Carousel in it. So talking about families, uh, Carousel is about a man who wants to uncover some secrets about his late father. He learns that his father had a secret career as a pornographer and a criminal. So the film, you know, he's talking about his his relationship with his father and his beautiful relationship. And then you get this fact. This is what happened. And so in the process of investigating that and trying to figure out for himself and understand for himself, and it's kind of an identity thing as well, he goes back and talks to his half-brother, his estranged half-brother. Yeah, who's many years older. Yeah, it's like the father had a first family and then moved on from that first family and tried to start a new life with his second family. So there's a tension between the gentlemen. Yeah, and it's it's it, that one's a very interesting film because it, the filmmaker who's trying to find out a little bit more about his father, it, I guess, is experiencing his father in the the loving moments, whereas the estranged older brother, he he and his father had more turbulent relationship, and then that's when you really find out about some of the, I guess, debauchery that was going on with the father and some of the shady activities that he was involved in. Yeah, because in. that was the time period where he, his father, the father was doing that. Mm-hmm. And it's a it's a really interesting film. And, you know, it, it goes to some dark places, but at the end it's really, a, as much as it's a, a tale about a, father, a son looking for a father, it's really about two brothers coming to terms with each other. Exactly. And learning to to move on together. And so that's it's it's quite a good film. Yeah, it's 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 a very um encouraging film mm-hmm. about families yeah, coming together. And the other film in that program, The Head The Head and the Hand, is a Portuguese film about two elderly women that live together. They're friends. Uh and they have interesting histories with their own families and you get to understand why they bonded they came together and how they rely on each other. And in fact, that is one of the most sisterly relations that you will see. And so, yeah, the whole program is really interesting. And, you know, watching these films together and how they all resonate off of each other. It's like, it's a fantastic example of what a great shorts program can do. Mm-hmm. So I highly recommend that. That's below the surface, part of the Canadian spectrum. Now, this is going to come out of nowhere, but I have to make sure I mention this film because it does remind me, like following that program of shorts, it does kind of make me think about humanity and how how we sometimes have to be reminded or how sometimes it's difficult it is, you know, even with the people closest to us. And imagine what it's like. We all know what it's like having been sort of removed from humanity through through society and, and life and, and social media and and how we're sort of separated sometimes from people who don't necessarily have the same beliefs as we do. And behind the curve is like an extreme example of people not having um, beliefs that I personally hold, which, you know, I grew up as they did. I We grew up with the notion that the earth is round. We grew up with the notion that people in the dark ages thought that the earth was flat. Now, the people in this film, Behind the Curve, are all members of communities and societies that say, no, in fact, we're going to prove that the earth is actually flat, that that was all lies. So there's a lot of conspiracy theory. There's a lot of um, what I would call anti-science, and, and, and people accuse them of anti-science, and in fact, so... So then you see certain individuals within these groups, some of the more popular, like the more well-known members of these of this group, trying to to scientifically prove, and and they it's all leading up towards this big convention where all the different groups across the straight the states and even in other countries are going to meet and they're going to share their scientific evidence, and it's that rocky road 
leading up to that. And it's got some twists and turns. It's really, it's, it's fascinating. And, you know, when I watched it with, it, there were some laughs. But intentional or unintentional? You know, there were some laughs where since since people I was watching it with were not believing in this, they mm -hmm. thought they were flakes, which is the first thing you would think. But I love the way that the film got past that. It did, it did, you know, cave into those kind of things because, well, you can't help it. The people yeah. just stand up and they say these things. But then the film sort starts to move deeper and deeper. And as it gets deeper and deeper, there's, there's a message. There is a very important message that it has. It's mm -hmm. not like a, you know, message that beats you over the head. It's just this very important reminder that it gives you about people who have unique ideas, who like to have unique ideas, who like to stand out from the crowd, and how these differences of opinion, of opinion can somehow reflect something bigger. Yeah, and that's, that's interesting that the movie's coming out now because that type of thought, especially towards debunking a lot of science is actually growing really popular with with social media yeah um, yeah so yeah that sounds like a very interesting film yeah and it does place itself in that context mm -hmm. right so it really makes you think and then in in the end it uh it it gives you an important insight into how to deal with all of it and how to mm -hmm. understand all of it in a different way rather than just laughing at it so uh, that's uh, behind the curve. I think it's a, it's a very, very f interesting but also important film. Now, you and I wa both watched a film. In, in some ways, it is about trying to understand. But in this case, it's something that we don't hear about a lot, which is what's going on with Al-Qaeda. Nobody, nobody has yet been able to penetrate the Al-Qaeda movement and give us an insight. And ter in terms of films that really get in somewhere and give us access, unprecedented access, of Fathers and, and Sons, which was the winner of the Sundance's Grand Jury Prize, mm -hmm. where the filmmaker goes in and poses as a sympathizer, gains the trust of members of Al-Qaeda and follows especially this one man and he see, he has what, seven or eight sons. Yeah, he's a lot of a lot of kids. A lot of kids and you know what he how he is as an active member of Al-Qaeda but also as a father. Yeah, it's it's fascinating because you know the fact that you have a filmmaker essentially lying to infiltrate this family and then spend years kind of documenting them that, you know, that's, that's a topic on its own that you could have a whole mm -hmm. entire show on. But what this film shows is just how ingrained the jihadist ideology is and like, and how it's being passed down to generations, generations. And in, in many ways it's, I found it a powerful but disturbing film because you think, okay, this father um, is essentially like a bomb diffuser, a bomb specialist within the Al-Nusr, um, part of the Al-Qaeda, and his children idolize him, and he hopes that one day his children will join the cause like him, but you also see him as a loving father. <laughs> like there's, ten there's, there's many tender moments I did not expect where he's just connecting with his kids, and something happens to, to him halfway through in the way how his kids react, you know, and the bond is incredibly yeah, strong a, on both sides. Bond. Yeah. But then they'll, they'll say things and do things that remind you that this is a place of nonstop war and destruction. And, you know, in many ways I felt like he was inadvertently condemning his kids to death because you see know, them at but, military camp and yeah. whatnot. And the idea is that they're going to fight and, you know, be he's raising heroes. fighters because he's raising fighters. yeah, he he is is loyal to the cause, and part of that of his belief in the cause is his belief that he has to sacrifice everything, and that means he has to. His it's his duty to get his sons in that same frame of mind as he is uh, to understand. It's not even a frame of mind for him; it's a reality. He mm -hmm. has to teach them the reality of 
the tr- what he sees as the truth and what uh, everyone in Al-Qaeda sees as the truth and hi- the history, their version of history. Um, and I, I hate to say their version, I mean, because with, with what's been going on um, in Syria and for so long, um, can, you, can you really blame? It's like it's hard to judge. It's hard to judge when you're in that. I can, I can be horrified, and I was horrified at certain things and certain beliefs, but I'm not in that situation. Yes. Yeah, so I don't understand that point of view, and I will never. So how can I judge it? Well, the film does a good job of at least letting you understand his his um, mindset, even if you don't necessarily agree with everything. And one of the fascinating things about this film is that it's a complex war that even the father at times thinks – well, it's got a clear end because the Quran says this, this, and this, and this was what happened. And even he admits that it will end and there will be no, there will be no victor at the end. But then there's times later on where he says, well, who knows if this war is going to end? Like he, he's really, really conflicted. And this was one of, I think, three films about Syria that I, I watched back to back. So just getting the various perspectives of the bleakness of, of what's going on there and the different sides of war. Um, I'll I'll mention a, a Canadian film called My War, and it's about Westerners, um, and in this case, individuals from Canada, who go over to Syria to fight for the Kurdish army. And they follow two people in particular. One is a, a soldier who did two tours in Afghanistan. It seems to be somewhat of a, a career soldier. And a woman who, at 42... Um, goes to to join the fight, and she ends up in the YPJ, which is an all-female unit in the Kurdish army. Um, but she's obviously the oldest one in this particular unit. Everyone else is 20, 21, to early 20s. And you see for a lot of it, they're there, they're ready to get in, into the action, and they almost have a lust to, to be part of the war and be be liberators. But for a lot of the film, they're kind of held back. So they're watching the explosions from the distance. And then when they do kind of get closer to the war, there's a weird detachment in them. And you start to wonder, well, who is this war really benefiting? Because they, they don't want to have a, quote-unquote, boring life, which is just a normal, everyday life back in Canada. You know, they can't see their life without this war. But at the same time, are they using the war for their own personal satisfaction? Or are the armies using them? Because it's good promotion to have the Westerners come and fight, but then you don't put them in the front line. So that was a fascinating one. And I will say, speaking of the YPJ, there's a film called Commander Arian. And it's about a female commander in the YPJ, the all-female unit. And you follow her as she is, um, they're on a mission to liberate a particular town. Um, and... The film juxtaposes her on that mission, and I guess at some point she gets shot five times. So it's juxtaposing her leading her army and of women, but also her recovering from her um, injury, trying to get back in the fight. And it's like there's serious injuries. So it's that it's a very interesting contrast, and she's very much um, wanting to believe that she can help and and. changes the course of the war like her soldiers need her and through all of this you also see her trying to empower her soldiers letting letting the women in her army know that they don't have to be basically just subservient to men and you know there's there's more to life than getting married and having kids so it's a it's a very fascinating look at a at a woman who is finding joy in liberating um, towns but especially liberating women because she has seen firsthand that what the Taliban and what ISIS do to women and the rough treatment, the murder, the rape. So it, in many ways, that's her mission is to free the women. So it's, a, it's another fascinating look. Now, this is an interesting segue for me. There were three films that I wanted to talk about today. There's so many films in the festival made by women or and or about women, and many of them are strong women, you know, what I like to call fierce women. So the film that you were just talking about 
reminds me of my my little sub theme that I keep noticing, which is the fierce women. And an incredible example of that is a film from Afghanistan, speaking of a war-torn country. It's called Layla at the Bridge. And Layla is, I mean, the, the description, I don't, I don't, the description has an interesting uh, first sentence introduction. It says, Layla is a self-described badass Afghan woman. I don't know if she's self-described, but she is. Someone who is a, a force to be reckoned with. In Afghanistan, there is, the society is in, in such a mess that the level of addiction has gone way up. Addiction to heroin. We're talking about serious addiction. Heroin is the hardest thing to get off of. And, and it's plentiful in Afghanistan. Opium, there's opium everywhere. Opium plants, you know, everywhere. What she does is she goes to, there's this one bridge where she lives, this giant bridge with this kind of mucky water underneath. It's not really full of water usually, but it's full of people. They hide under the bridge and they, that's where they shoot up, smoke up, whatever. Um, and they're, that's basically they just stay there. They're addicts. Um, they've given up hope. And she goes to this bridge regularly because she has decided that she is, has, is going to save as many, if, even if it's one person, she's going to try to save people from their addictions. And, and it's her contribution to like healing the society is by he, trying to heal people. And uh, so she has a, a camp that she runs with her brother, Narcotics Anonymous, which is run like a, a Alcoholics Anonymous. Which is, you know, day by day, the serenity prayer. And, uh, just as a point of information that I know, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, they have something like a 14% rate of recovery. And that actually is the highest rate of any kind of plan to help someone recover from addiction. So it's the best that anybody can do. But the reputation goes around that, you know, and she comes and she's completely understanding the, the compassion and the patience that this woman has towards individuals. But then the fierce determination she has when she has to deal with incompetent government people who, who won't give her money, who should give her money, who promise money. Um, but anyway, so, so she she starts off, she just goes and tries to get people, you know, will you stop? Do you want to stop being an addict? And she brings them and she has this, this sort of whole program for helping them to get clean. And, um, she, she talks about getting healthy, you know, and you follow individuals in the program and you follow individuals as they leave the program and often come back to the program. But what she does uh, is, is so laudable and so, frustrating in many ways because of the outside crap that she has to put up with. Mm -hmm. So, so that's Layla at the bridge. She, you know, she's very, she's quite the inspiring woman. And another film uh, called 93 Queen is, is a woman named Ruhi Fryer, Rachel Ruhi Fryer. Everybody calls her Ruhi. And she lives in this Hasidic, the Hasidic neighborhood of, of uh, New York City called Borough Park, set up uh, a volunteer ambulance corps called Hatsula. But it's men only. The problem with uh, Hasidic, the Hasidic beliefs is that, you know, in terms of, you know, men and women being separate, being, being married, but being separate is that it comes, when it comes to childbirth, when it comes to a woman calling an ambulance and saying, I need help, a man cannot come in and help her according to the religion. So she, the woman is stuck and horrified at the thought of having to call Hatsula. She can't call the other because, mm -hmm. you know, they're not Hasidic and she can't call Hatsula. So she sets up a women's volunteer group, which oh, is cool. really fought against by the community. And uh, so she has to go through a lot and she gives a lot and she's not perfect, but she is 
you know, she's she's inspiring. So and the story's inspiring. And just the last one, she's inspiring in a different way. Mamacita is a film from Mexico and, and we haven't mentioned that Mexico is a is the one of the feature the countries. feature country. Yeah. yeah. So Mamacita is a film about uh the filmmaker's ninety five year old grandmother. Now she's she's uh not the likely candidate for for a fierce woman. Uh, she's kind of demanding, kind of narcissistic, but she is the head of the family. She's she's very tough, and you know she says how it is. But really, what makes her a hero to me, what makes her a fierce woman to me, is what this this director is able to learn and to able to suss out from her, and and the special relationship he develop, develops with her, where they end up finding the family secret, and it's that family secret that has me believing and I think others as well that shows you that she's a fierce woman having encounter like having lived through that and then continuing to live with that past with with uh, the legacy of that secret mm -hmm. makes her you know one of the strongest fiercest women oh, well you know I'll add one last film um, just to that and it's called yours in sisterhood and it's a film about like I say the filmmaker uncovered a whole bunch of unreleased letters to Miss Magazine and Miss Magazine was the first um, feminist magazine mainstream feminist magazine in America so the the premise is very simple she gets women from the various backgrounds from 32 different states to just read the letters and give them um, their thoughts on the letter that they just read. But it's fascinating. You, you think the, the format would get tiresome, but no. You, you start to realize that a lot of the issues that women were writing about in the, the 70s in relation to feminism, the way women are treated in the workplace, sexual harassment, rape, um, racism, are a lot of the issues that we're still dealing with today. And... You know, people will think that it's it's timely because of the Me Too movement, but you really realize that no, this people have been fighting this fight for a long time, and society just seems to kind of forget these things and then come back. So, definitely one I think everyone should should check out. Okay, I'm just gonna quickly say something about a Canadian film. Very quickly, it's called Love Scott. Uh, it's it's one of those films where the the individual will inspire you. I have to say, the individual will inspire you, and his story is is quite horrific. It's it's a hate crime that happens to him, and the way it changes and affects his life, and the the road to healing. And and it, you know, we've been talking a lot about people, individuals, who uh, are inspiring. We've been talking about a lot of films, who you know, the focus on an individual, give us a portrait. This is an important portrait of a you know an individual who who went through a lot and has come out the other side in in his own ways mm. and so i think you you should see this film to see how he has accomplished that so that's it for frameline for this week courtney and i are going to be back next week to just finish off hot dogs we'll tell you about you know what's happening on the last weekend always films that are still going to be playing on the weekend that are really terrific thanks